Thank you, guys. Great job. I like that song. You, I don't remember hearing it before, but I liked it. And then that song Wally and Phil sang, it's always been one of my favorite songs. Go ahead and get in your Bible to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Appreciate Brother Josh filling in for me last Sunday night on short notice. I'm super glad, as I mentioned this morning, to be here in my place. I think everybody who's a member of Bible Baptist Church is a body part in the body of Christ here. And the body functions well when all the parts are here. Amen? Uh, we've been talking about Bible doctrine on Sunday nights for quite some time. As I've mentioned to you on several occasions, I have 53 subjects planned. Tonight we will finish up the 35th of those 53 subjects. I'm in no hurry to get done. I want to give anyone who wants a more than a basic understanding of Bible doctrine an opportunity to have that and to learn them. But listen, big, biblical ignorance has never helped any culture. It has never helped any church. It has never helped any individual. One of the best things you will ever do in your life is become a biblically literate person. My goal in this series is for us as a church family to understand why. Christianity begins with us learning what, what are Bible doctrines, what does the Bible teach. Christian maturity comes when we learn why. Why do I believe what I believe? Why do I do what I do? And we are on the third week of a little mini-series on our spiritual adversary, the great spiritual adversary of our Creator, Satan. Remember, if a soldier knows his enemy and he knows what that enemy is trying to do and he has the means to defeat that enemy, that's going to be an effective soldier. And through Christ, we have the means to defeat our spiritual adversary in life. And I think I reflect the attitude of people who are back here on a Sunday night when I say, I want to be an effective soldier for Jesus Christ. We answered the questions, where did Lucifer come from? How can he exist when God, his creator, is perfectly good? We talked about uh, how we learn things uh, about Jesus by the different names by which he goes by in the Bible, and we also learn things about God's spiritual adversary by the names he's called in the Bible. We talked about him being a roaring lion. Whom seeking whom he may devour. We talked about him as the adversary. Remember, the actual meaning of the name Satan is adversary, and we talked about how we can defeat him in his role as the adversary. We spent talking, time talking about him as the tempter, and he first appeared doing this in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, and we spent time talking about how to defeat him as the tempter. Uh, but there are still other names that the Scripture gives to Lucifer, to this great adversary of God, names that help us know our enemy. Uh, he is the one enemy we are not supposed to love. We are supposed to love the pawns he uses to hurt us and hurt the world, uh, but we do not have to love Satan, our enemy, the enemy of God. He is called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4, he's called the prince of this world three times by Jesus. It is his value system that dominates and his priorities that dominate the world in which we live. It's no surprise when his priorities and his values dominate our world that Christian people are commanded to be separate from this world. 
Uh, he is called a murderer from the beginning and a liar by Jesus in John 8.44. And whenever you in the news or in the circle of your life find a situation where there is a complete disregard for human life, there is a complete absence of integrity, and there is no natural affection, know that in some way the devil is involved as the murderer and liar. He's called the serpent eight times. Five in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament. That refers to his cunning and his subtlety. He is called the dragon 13 times. Communicating, I think, his special power and the natural fascination and curiosity we have with him and with evil. And there are a couple of other additional names by which Lucifer is referred, and I would like to focus on two more of those tonight as we finish this little mini-segment on the archenemy of God. And if you would, please stand in honor of the Word of God, if you're able to stand, as we try to understand and expose the nature of our enemy so that we might defeat him through Christ Jesus, our Savior. The title of my thought tonight is Satan, the Great Adversary of God, Part 3. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. It says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, who was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Notice in contrast to that, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Thank you, might be seated. What can we learn about the great enemy of Jesus Christ by the name which is, by which he is called? Number one, Lucifer is called the accuser of our brethren. Not just an accuser, the accuser of our brethren. Now, this particular section of Revelation is what most people would call a parenthetical. And if you were here for our verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Revelation, which lasted about a year, we talked about parentheticals a lot. A parenthetical is just a section where God pauses the sequential time, uh, sequential uh, events to go back in time and describe either someone or something in great detail. You see that a lot in the book of Revelation. You see it a lot in the book of Genesis. All kinds of books we read uh, today do the same thing. This is a parenthetical, and God goes back to describe in further detail uh, our adversary. And in this text, among other things, in verse 10, he is called, near the end, says, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. It's pretty obvious here that the accuser of their brethren from verse 9 is the great dragon, the old serpent, 
called the devil and Satan. Obviously, these are all refer to the same individual. Now, you may be shocked, and some people may be shocked to learn that Satan still has some kind of access to heaven. Uh, in fact, he will have that access unto the middle of the seven-year great tribulation that's coming on the earth. And it will be at that time, in the middle of those seven years, that he and some angels who are loyal to him will be fully and finally cast out of heaven to earth. Perhaps this is why in heaven we read about there being a tabernacle, a temple, and all those things that we read about uh, the old Jewish tabernacle picture. Uh, at that time, he will fully unleash his hatred of God. He will fully unleash his hatred of mankind. The unsaved Jews and believers in Christ who were converted after the rapture, he knows he has only a short time, about three and a half years before he will be put in the pit. And that's what 12 says uh, near the end. says, His devil is come down unto you having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. You see... Bible students understand that Satan isn't in hell today. Some people think he is. He's not in hell today. Uh, by the way, he's also not confined to earth today. Now, he was and is in the presence of God making his accusations. Uh, you may remember from the story of Job, though he had been cast down from his position as the anointed cherub, he had been cast down, he had been not been cast out of heaven and from his direct access to God. Do you remember what he said to God in the beginning of uh, Job in chapter 1 and verse 10? Here's what Satan said to God. He says, hast thou not thou made an hedge about him, about his house? about all that he hath on every side. Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath. He'll curse thee to thy face. Can you not hear the hiss of his accusations? God, you have made Job your favorite. God, you have given Job an easy path. God, you have been overprotective of Job. You've babied him. That's the reason that he loves you. That's the reason he has faith. Can you not hear the hiss of his accusations in what he said about Job to God? In fact, we're clearly told that he's doing the same thing in heaven today uh, at the end of verse 10. He says, For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accuseth them before our God day and night. He's not just an accuser. There are a lot of people who are critics. He is the accuser of our brethren. Listen, you can bet he had something to say to God when Abraham left the promised land for Egypt. You can bet he had something to say to God when uh, Isaac showed favoritism in his home. You can bet he had something to say to God when Jacob deceived his father Isaac to get the blessing. You can bet he had plenty to say when David allowed his lusts to dominate his decision-making. You can bet he had plenty to say when Peter denied Christ three times. Listen, he is an accuser of the brethren. Don't think for a moment that he doesn't make and have the same kind of accusations about you and me to our God today. Pointing out every error. Saying that God is being too good to us. Telling God He's being too easy on us and protecting us too much as His children. It is in His role as the accuser 
that we often underestimate the damage and pain that he causes. Listen, we have a good handle on the damage and pain he causes as the roaring lion who walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We have a good handle on the damage and pain he causes as the tempter and as the adversary, but we don't have a good handle on the pain he causes by making accusations. So why would you say that? Uh, Because it's likely that the majority of people here tonight sometimes carelessly and casually make our own accusations. Accusations at God. God, why are you doing this to me? God, why did you allow that? Listen, God is fine with us asking why. On the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why? There's a big difference in respectfully asking God, Father, why did you allow this? Show me, help help me see. There's a big difference in saying, God, why did you do this? As if you and I don't deserve to have anything happen to us like that. And it's not just accusations at God that we find ourselves making. You know what? Oftentimes it's accusations at God's people. Have you ever come to notice that most of the things people say, they really don't know that much about what they're talking about? I mean, understand that you and I, whenever we allow ourselves to become in this role of being an accuser of the brethren or an accuser of God, we are literally playing into His hands. And it's happened to all of us here a time or two. In fact, the name devil actually means accuser or slanderer. To charge with a fault or offense to blame, defame, malign. Listen, every time you and I read about Lucifer being called the devil, we are in essence reading of him being an accuser. Someone who blames or finds fault. The phrase the devil appears 34 times in the New Testament referring to this individual, this arch enemy of our God because he is an accuser of the brethren. Uh, in our Bible, the phrase the devil also appears re- referring to an evil spirit. Some people would call them demons. Our uh, Bible translates that as devil. Uh, listen, it's the same thing an accuser. The devil's accusations begin with accusations against God Himself. He whispers in your ear and mine God isn't good. God doesn't love you like He loves such and so. God doesn't bless you like He blesses such and so. You don't have it easy as someone else seems to have it. God's promises aren't for you. You failed too badly for God to do anything with you. Listen, those are all accusations at God that He whispers in all of our ears from time to time. And we need to remember that God is always good. And that God always loves you, and He always loves me. I didn't say He always loves what we do, but because God is love, He always loves us. His accusations continue with those He makes against the people of God. (laughs) You know, one of the biggest difficulties with His accusations, most of the time there's a measure of accuracy. See, accusations that have no merit or no basis in truth at at, at all, they don't bother us much. 
But the fact of the matter is, is that everyone here, including myself, we have enough human flaws in our life, enough times when we fail and sin to be what we know we ought to be, that there's a lot of times when His accusations of us, they have an element of truth, and that's a part of what makes them hurt so much. He makes sure other people notice every fault, every error, every place our humanity gets the best of us, and then He tweaks them to speak up about it. Is it not such a tragedy that we find it so easy to find the faults and flaws of everyone and so difficult to see what's good about them? May God help us all to be more careful when we accuse or slander some dear child of God. You say, Brother Wally, I, I get what you're saying. How can I defeat... Uh, Lucifer in his role as the accuser, how can I defeat him? Well, note verse 11 gives us the answer there in Revelation chapter 12. It says, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. <laughs> Listen, you and I can't answer every accusation or slander that's spoken against us. Um, thankfully, we don't know them all. And by the way, if you're the kind of person that... Uh, goes up to some friend of yours and says, you know what such and so said about you? Well, I really wish you would stop that. You, you know good and well that you're not telling them that for their benefit. You're telling them that so that they will have some measure of anger or angst about that person who opened their mouth. In fact, we would all be way wiser if someone begins a sentence, do you know what such and so said about you? No, I don't, and I don't want to know. And let me just do this for myself. Amen. Say, Brother Wally, I hear what you're saying. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and their testimony, but what does that mean on a practical basis? It means you must learn who you are in Christ, what the blood of the Lamb has done for you. Listen, you are perfectly righteous in God's eyes. Your sins have been completely washed away by Christ's blood. They are not in God's record, and He will not impute any future sins to you. They are all on Christ. <laughs> You're eternally secure. You're loved by God because God is love. Listen, allowing the fact that we are already accepted by Christ and already loved by God is not only great doctrine, it sets us free as we face these constant criticisms and slanders voiced by people around us and in our own mind. So okay, I get it. It means learn who you are in Christ. Uh, it also means we need to live in a way that lives down what people say. That's the word of our testimony. You see, the truth of what is being said will eventually either prove the accusation to be wrong or it'll prove it to be true. I one time had somebody come to me and they wanted to be married quickly and they were concerned that people would say, well, you're getting married quickly. I wonder if they're pregnant. And what I told them was very simply this, there are always people running their yap. By the way, I'm not just talking about out there, talking about in here. And I said to them, time will prove that you're not. The word of your testimony. 
And by the way, what that does also is makes what that person said when they became the hiss of the serpent with their accusation and their careless words, it makes them less believable in the future. You know, one of the things I'm proudest of in my life is that after being a youth leader for 20-some years, most of it, before my children were teenagers, I'm proud of the fact that when our boys were teenagers, I had them do the same things I told other teenagers. For years, I had parents say, well, you'll never make your kids do that. Your kids will go to school dances. Your kids will listen to rock music. They probably did, but not in my house, amen? I mean, accusation after accusation after accusation. And by the way, you never know what you're going to do till you're in the situation to do it. I thank God that when the, when the chips were down, I handled them like I handled everybody else's kid. Uh, for years, as a layperson and as an assistant pastor, I had people constantly saying, well, you're just doing that because the preacher says so. You just believe that because the pastor says that. I'm glad, by the grace of God, that though that dear man of God who is now with Christ is no longer around, a time proved whether I really believe those things for myself. And by the way, until you're in the valley of adversity, you don't really know. Overcome him by the word of your testimony. Keep your hand there. Go back in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2 because there's another way we overcome him. The blood of the Lamb. The word of our testimony. And overcome him by remembering we have an advocate with the Father. By the way, the word advocate is like a defense attorney. In 1 John chapter 2, and verse 1, it says these words, I'll be there. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. That's God's desire, that you shouldn't sin. It says, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Uh, listen, I, I'm not the only person here that fails in some way, and then I begin beating myself up over it. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes it's a human failure. Sometimes it's just some sin that I'm trying to get out of my heart or, or mind that I allow to fester in there. And I get so disappointed in myself. And again, I, I think most of you know what, what I'm talking about. You know, in times like that, you need to remember that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. He, he will never say, hey, what you did that was sinful is okay. But he will always say, he belongs to me. Did you hear that? He will always say, he belongs to me, if you're saved. And if you're not saved, tonight's a good night to get saved. So that you can have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, and the righteous. Let me ask you, are you recognizing this aspect of our spiritual adversary's work and not allow him to defeat you with accusation? Listen, I've had people over the years, I've person after person, you know, quits this ministry, stops coming to church because such and so said that. 
Please don't be like that. Hey, listen, Satan is always going to find somebody to say something. And before you get too angry about it, sometimes that somebody's you. On occasion, that somebody's been me. Say, Pastor, hey, I am a sinner saved by the grace of God. I'm not standing here because I'm better than you. I'm standing here because God called and gifted me to do this. Honestly, you may not believe this, but I fully believe with all my heart there are many people in here who are better people than I am. I, I believe that. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Do you recognize the real accuser of the brethren enough to guard your own mouth? To recognize whose pawn you become when you carelessly make accusations at God or one of His people? Do you guard your ears from accusations? Or do you let your ears become someone else's garbage can? There's people all over this room, and you're really proud that people bring their complaints to you. Do you know why they bring your com their complaints to you? Because they know you're not going to taste it. Well, you know what? That person, I know them, they're not like that. They, 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 they know that you're okay with making your ear their garbage can. Do, do you have enough sense in your mind to understand that the arch enemy of our God, the accuser of our brethren, has to find open ears. Which gets us to our second thing tonight, if you would please, and last thing tonight, uh, Revelation chapter 12. You say, wow, you're in the last thing? We got 15 minutes yet? Yep. So you mean you might get us out early? I might. But I might not. Listen, I love the Bible. That's why you're here tonight. You're not here because I have this entertaining personality. Quite frankly, I find myself, for the most part, not that likable. But we have this mutual interest in Jesus Christ and the things of God. That's what brings you back here. Here's secondly and lastly, Lucifer is described as the one who deceives the whole world. He's not just an accuser of the brethren, he is the deceiver of the whole world. Look at verse 9, we read it earlier, that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He is a deceiver. To deceive is a cause to accept as true or valid something that is false or invalid to cheat, mislead, or beguile. There's not a person here who, when you find yourself having been deceived in some way, you're not angry, disappointed, hurt. Listen, we've all had it happen to us. It hurts to be deceived. But listen, uh, Lucifer takes great joy in deceiving people. In fact, in his final moment of freedom, when those seven years ends, after Jesus comes in power and glory and defeats the Antichrist and false prophet in the Megiddo Valley, as the world assembles with their fists toward heaven at our God, uh, 
one angel takes Satan and casts him in a pit, the bottomless pit for a thousand years. He's in there a thousand years and go up to Revelation 20 and notice what he does after being chained for a thousand years and notice what he does to a group of people that for their entire lifetime, there has been no devil. A group of people who for their whole lifetime were ruled over by Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A group of people who had all righteous and just laws. A group of people who lived in a time when there was a thousand years of peace both among mankind and the animal kingdom when man for the first time has beaten his sword into a plowshare. He comes to that group of people who live in a time the Bible describes as having the knowledge of God cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. You would think these people would never fall for anything. But notice what happens in Satan's final act in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. He should go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, a number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up in the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of saints about in their beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever in his final act he deceives these people who are living under ideal conditions so what point are you trying to make he is incredibly good at deceiving people you see our creator is a god of integrity he's truthful he's trustworthy god does not deceive or mislead anyone ever. Lucifer is a deceiver. He has no integrity. He is an expert at cheating and misleading and beguiling people. Which brings up a good question. How can he be so effective at deception? I mean, think about it. He deceived what is likely, certainly hundreds of millions of people, but likely uh, over a billion people from ideal con conditions. How, how, why is he such a good deceiver? Listen, he is such a good deceiver that he deceived one-third of the angels who had seen God's face with their own eyes, heard God's voice with their own ears. Uh, he deceived them into rebelling with him. Why is he such a good deceiver? Well, go to 2 Corinthians 11. And you can leave Revelation behind. We're done there for now. 2 Corinthians 11. Why is he good, such a good deceiver? Uh, the first reason he's a good deceiver of us is he is great at pretending to be a Christian. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 12. says, but what I do, that I will do. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that we're in that glory and they may be found even as we are. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. By the way, you want to know who the angel of Moroni really is? It's Lucifer. 
pretending to be an angel of light. So who's the angel Moroni? That, that's the uh, alleged individual that gave Joseph Smith the golden tablets that founded Mormonism. Verse 14, no marvel, Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. <laughs> hey, listen, don't think for a moment that when Satan pretended to be an apostle, a good angel, and a minister of righteousness in the first century, that he doesn't use that tactic anymore. I mean, understand, Satan is never effective with Christian people coming in and saying, I'm the devil. That, that doesn't work with us. He must don the external trappings of a sheep, or we won't listen. Now listen, to the world, to the lost world out there, He can come to some of them as the devil. He can come to some of them who want to be famous and who want to be rich and say, hey listen, uh, I'm the devil and if you give me your life, you do what I want you to do. I'll make you rich. I'll make you famous. I'm the God of this world. And listen, there's a lot of people who will do that in the world. But Christian people, that doesn't work for us. He can't come as the devil. He's got to pretend to be a sheep. So how can we recognize them? Listen, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing have the fruit of a wolf. So what is fruit? Fruit is what we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears that we can compare to the Word of God. You can recognize a wolf in sheep's clothing by what they say and what they do by comparing it to what God's Word says. He's a master at twisting God's words. In fact, if you study, and we aren't going to take the time to do that, Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, one of those three temptations, he tried to quote the Word of God, left some out. But he doesn't, doesn't just deceive believers by pretending to be a sheep. Turn back a few pages to chapter 4. He doesn't just deceive believers pretending to be a sheep. He deceives the world, blinding their minds to the truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. He deceives the world, blinding their minds. Isn't it interesting that he blinds their minds? He affects their thinking. He affects what they believe. Listen, there are people everywhere who don't understand that there is intellectual reasonableness to everything that, there's in the, that there is in the Bible. Listen, there's an intellectual reasonableness to God being the Creator. There's an intellectual reasonableness to be in a global flood. There's an, there, there's an intellectual reasonableness to all of mankind being divided by language. E everything in there, there's an intellectual reasonableness to if... You want to look. But God has blinded their minds to think there's no answer. God has blinded their minds that they will not ask anyone who might actually know an answer.
Listen, there are no intellectual problems with the Bible, only heart problems with humbling yourself before God. I say, why is he such a deceptive person? How can we defeat him in his role as a deceiver? Here's how. Number one, realize he works and moves in inches rather than feet or yards. If you're here tonight and you're only guarding against big changes in your life, you're, you're vulnerable. He is a master at moving people one inch at a time. We're impatient. He's very patient. He will move us from good things to things, from things to bad things, one inch at a time. Listen, if you don't want to move a foot or a yard in your life, don't move an inch. He is an expert at moving us a little at a time, and I couldn't tell you how many hundreds of people I knew over the years who moved one inch at a time to end up somewhere they thought they would never be. You and I need to find the right way and get in it and not allow ourselves to be moved at all. Say, Brother Wally, how do we defeat Lucifer in his role as a deceiver? Not just recognizing he moves in inches. Secondly, recognizing and being especially on guard at times when we're most vulnerable. Did you know that you and I are not strong equally at all times? Did you know that you and I are not strong equally in every area of life? You and I all have seasons that we're weaker in. You and I all have areas of life that we're weaker in and that we're more vulnerable. And if you and I pretend that we're strong all the time or that we're equally strong in every area of life, we become susceptible to his deception. By the way, one of the times when all of us are vulnerable are times of transition. You see, in times of transition, you and I have to redraw all of our lives. You say, what do you mean? I'm talking about you get married. I'm talking about you have a child. I'm talking about you buy a house. I'm talking about you change jobs. I'm talking about someone you really look to passes away or leaves to go to a different ministry. Uh, any big change in our life, and it is always a vulnerable season. Do you recognize that? If you don't recognize your own vulnerability in times of transition, you will be much more susceptible to being deceived. In life's transition, we redraw boundaries, we reestablish good habits, and we need to be especially watchful. How do we defeat Lucifer in his role as deceiver? Lastly, tonight, number three, we realize that centuries of biblical Christians who went before us weren't all dumb. For the last 400 plus years, God has used a kind of Christianity to build two great nations, America and England. And God used those two great nations for hundreds of years to translate the Bible into more languages, to reach more cultures, to have a greater missionary movement than any time since the first century in the days of the apostles. Listen, God didn't do that by accident. 
And it's very easy living in a day and age like we do where we have all this technological advancement to think that we're so bright and they were so dumb. Hear me when I say these greatly used men and women of God, they were not messed up on basic issues like worship, discipleship, Christian living, the church. Listen, Christianity hadn't been waiting around for the last 1,900 years and 400 years in English-speaking Christianity. It hadn't been waiting around for this generation to say, wow, you know what? We really need to change everything because we haven't been worshiping God. We need to change everything because this Bible isn't any good. We need to change everything because no one really understands like we do how to be a disciple. You see, people read uh, authors, uh, contemporary authors, and they think, wow, they have so much insight. They're so bright. You know the reason people do that? You, you haven't read people like John Gill, who wrote in the 1700s, or Charles Spurgeon, who wrote at the turn of the in 19th century, and understand the depth of wisdom and knowledge and understanding they had about the things of God. He said, well, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have a smartphone. They can't even score 400 points in words with friends. Listen, whenever we become proud to think that this generation, our generation, has been sent to fix Christianity, Christianity, English-speaking Christianity that changed the world, I'm talking about revivals, not where everybody just got together. I'm talking about revivals where the bars in the city shut down. I'm talking about revivals where churches that were empty became full. Don't try to tell me that those people didn't know basics. And you and I become open to deception when we proudly think they were so dumb. And we are so smart. By the way, if you don't believe that, look around and see the product. American Christianity has very little impact on our culture and very little impact on our world because they're like the world. And they're being deceived. I want to be a faithful soldier. I want to know my enemy. I want to understand that he is the accuser of the brethren. And he'll help me guard my mouth and guard my ears. I want to understand that he's a deceiver. And that there are times in my life, see my hand up? There are times in my life when I'm more vulnerable to being deceived. Listen, I'm not the only person in this room who has on occasion been moved an inch at a time and then found myself somewhere I never thought I'd be. In ourselves, we are no match. But Christ lives in us. Greater is He in us and he who's in the world. Amen. Amen. You quietly stand.